Welcome to the sixth episode of the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington. In this episode, we talk about growing up Iranian in America and living and working as an American in Iran amidst 40 years of political turmoil between the two countries. My guest today is Yara Elmjui, an award-winning journalist with Al Jazeera who hosts and produces the show Eat This with Yara, a show that deals with food and social justice. Yara, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thanks for having me, Nagar. I'm really excited to be here. Great to have you. Tell us who Yara Elmjui is. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? How it was growing up? Who is Yara? Oh, my God. Who am I? Ooh. Okay, so uh, I was born and raised in Northern California in a suburb of San Francisco uh, called San Jose. There's a lot of Iranians up there. And yeah, I mean, basically, I grew up in a small town, which has kind of gotten larger over the years because, interestingly enough, kind of my claim to fame, I guess, is uh, Netflix is based in my town or is headquartered in my town. And that sort of changed a lot of the dynamics there. <laughs> but uh, the town is, again, it's a suburb of a suburb. So I live, I was born and raised in Los Gatos, California. And um, yeah, a largely white community, uh, although that's changing now, but it was a small kind of white town. And uh, we were among the few Iranian families that lived there at the time. And so Grew up there. Mm, how was that? How was growing up Iranian in Northern California, especially in a suburban white neighborhood? Totally. I mean, it's, it's uh, God, I mean, I, I, I share so many experiences with other children of immigrants, even with other immigrants, honestly, because, you know, you're kind of an outsider in this town, right? Like you, you, you're coming of age, you're growing up and, you know, you don't really see yourself reflected in your community. And you don't see yourself reflected in the media. You don't see yourself reflected on the Saturday morning cartoons. You don't see yourself reflected when you turn on the TV or go to the movies. So there, you know, is a feeling of awkwardness and like aloneness, I guess, of, of, of this sort of cultural solitude that you feel, or at least that I felt growing up in this kind of small town. Um, I didn't really have any Iranian friends growing up uh, in my school, right? I mean, later on, there'd be a few other kind of Iranian kids that would pop up in middle school and high school and, and so forth. And, you know, I'd get to know them. But yeah, growing up, it was just like me and uh, <laughs> I guess non-Iranians, a lot of white kids. And, um, you know, it, it you know, you, you speak to a different language with your parents, you have this other code. And then when you have play dates with Billy or John or Jack, it's always like your parents are there and immediately you just start speaking to them, you know, for me in Persian. And that was just like my go to I was just like, this is my comfort zone, my comfort food linguistically. Uh, I'm my mom is here, my dad is here, I have to tell them a the thing. Or also there were some things that, you know, as I was kind of coming to grips with living in a society that didn't look like me or didn't have my heritage. Uh, it was it was my opportunity to kind of express maybe any discomfort I may have felt to this other party, my parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, like so-and-so, like, you know, Billy is asking me to sleep over, but I actually don't know if I feel comfortable sleeping over tonight. And I would just say that to my parent. And I'd be like, oh, but could you just tell them that, oh, Yara has work to do or we need Yara to help out with the backyard tomorrow <laughs> so that I don't have to tell them so there's no Tarof and Rudavosi. <laughs> so, like, you know, I'm growing up with Tarof, Rudavosi, these very Iranian concepts. But I explain that to my parent, my parent takes care of it, you know, on, in, on the English front, and then uh, we resolve this cultural uh, discomfort very easily. <laughs> <laughs> the perks of speaking a second language that not many others speak. 
And how about tell us a little bit about the political dynamic, because I know the experience of growing up as an immigrant is shared. A lot of it is shared with other immigrants. But what some other immigrants may not realize or minority groups is the political dynamics between the U.S. and your um, you or your parents or ancestors homeland and how that would affect your life growing up in this country as an immigrant. How do you think that has impacted you? Basically, the Iran, US-Iran political fight of the past 40 totally. years. Uh, it, it's definitely had a huge impact. And I'm actually glad you asked that question because, and I think for a lot of other Iranian Americans and other hyphenated Americans from other immigrant communities. Um, so, you know, my experience obviously is different from my parents. You know, they are first generation immigrants. Yeah, I'm, you know, a second generation American, depending on how you want to define it. Uh, but yeah, born and raised in Northern California. But um, it's something that kept coming back to me. So, you know, when I was a kid, obviously not having anyone that was like me around me or, you know, within any sort of proximity to me, uh, I wanted to blend in. And I think that's a natural impulse. Like, I don't want to be different because there's no one like me that I can share my difference with. So I feel alone. So I don't want to feel alone. And, 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 and to avoid that feeling of, again, that cultural solitude or whatever it happens to be and wanting to fit in, I would try to downplay, you know, what made me different or what made me unique. I would want to be like Billy and John and Jack and and I wouldn't want to eat the foods, you know, that maybe my parents were making at school or something. They'd give me packed lunches or what have you. And so initially it's that. But then as I grew up, you know, this started to change. And I think this changes for a lot of, you know, second gen kids or, or what have you. It's it's you sort of start to slowly come around to exploring it and then embracing it. And I think for me, that really happened in maybe in high school. And obviously, Iran being featured, as you mentioned, so prominently in the news every day, you know, for any reason, you know, our country of heritage is always in the news. There's always a controversy. There's always a scandal. There's always something, some geopolitical event, very explosive geopolitical news story. And so I remember being asked in high school from one of my teachers, you know, what I thought about Ahmadinejad. And, um, you know, for them, it's like these are, you know, this is a white teacher and he kind of came up to me after class just trying to start, you know, just trying to spark a conversation. Like, so, yeah, Yara, I know uh, your parents are, you know, Iranian. Uh, uh, what do you think about this uh, Akamaka, you know, Akamenadinejad guy, you know, <laughs> and this mm -hmm. always comes up. Oh, yeah, wow. you know, and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm just a kid. I'm in high school. I'm like, I'm not thinking about maybe the things that I think about today, but I'm just like, oh, well, you know, uh, this and that. I wasn't really well equipped. I hadn't really had that opportunity to you know, learn too much about Iran outside of the trips I'd made there as a kid with my parents over the summer. So uh, I felt like I was at a loss for words. And now this is something I want to talk to you about. This is a longer story. And I, I, I know I'm going to go off a little bit on a tangent, but I'm going to bring it back. But it's, you know, there's Edward Said, the, the person behind the concept of, you know, Orientalism, the Palestinian American scholar, you know, who basically wrote about how, you know, non-white people, I mean, if I could kind of, it's hard to explain Orientalism in a sentence, but, you know, how non-white people are belittled or, or their cultures are seen as lesser or different and othered in a certain way, all in the interest of imperial conquest or kind of um, in the interest of colonization is that's that's kind of how that relationship and that power dynamic exists, right? So I wasn't really aware of Orientalism, but in that sense, one of the things that Edward Said has written about, I can't, I, I don't know if it's in the actual work itself or if it's in kind of another speech or or uh, essay he wrote, but it's kind of like you as a person of color from you know, this other part of the world, living in the Western world, you become a reference point 
right? You become kind of this guide and it's not through your choosing, right? It's kind of a position that's imposed on you, right? This is something that happens to say a lot of, you know, we'll speak within the context of Middle Eastern Americans. We are seen as, oh, you are the source of this culture. I am going to approach you. Whereas really, I'm just a kid from Northern California, right? Like I'm just a brown kid from Northern California. Um, But again, to kind of the larger Western society, it's like, oh, Iranian, he must have the information. We must approach him and ask him. So then I sort of became treated as the source on Iran, even though, again, just a teenager, I was more into skateboarding or learning how to skateboard, which I was not successful at, than uh, learning about Iranian politics. But in any case, people kept asking me, right? I'd go to my friend's houses and they'd be like, oh, so this Iranian guy heard about, you know, Ahmadinejad and he's different from the reform, the, the, the Katami, you know, who's that? And so... I kept feeling like I was at a loss for words. I was being treated as this reference, this sort of pigeonholed into this position. And I just couldn't do it. And and I couldn't respond. I didn't know. And for better or for worse, I mean, this is I am a product of my circumstance. And that was my circumstance. That circumstance prompted me to look into my heritage and to learn more about Iran. Again, it's not something that I think I I don't think this should happen. People should not have to answer for something that doesn't have to do with them. You know, I am not a spokesperson for Iran and the Iranian people in the country of Iran. Again, as someone who was, I've spent the vast, vast majority of my life in the US. I'm an American of Iranian heritage. But but for better or worse, these life circumstances goaded me in that direction to, to feel like I could stand up and answer these questions. Um, and again, mm-hmm. it's a, it basically forced you into becoming that ambassador that everyone <laughs> expected right, right. to explain Iran right. to everyone else. Absolutely, perfectly said. And and again, I, I I do I do not think this is a good thing. People should not have to go through this. But that was my circumstance, and that was my kind of knee jerk reaction to it. I just felt like I needed to answer, and so I started looking into those things. I started reading more articles so that you know, if my teacher or my friend's parent asked me, I could at least provide some insight. Um, especially given the hostile relationship that exists between my country of heritage, Iran, um, and my kind of I don't know how to describe my homeland, the United States. I don't know how you, yeah how how we're going to make that distinction, but. Um, and so more and more I started looking into it and I started to come around to all these things. I started to not want to kind of, um, uh, what's the word, uh, put aside the things that made me different and unique, but rather embrace them, right? Because I started to be like, hey, you know, this is kind of cool. Like, I don't have to be like everyone else. And, you know, you're kind of a budding teenager and you're going into college and you're starting to celebrate the things that make you you and finding out who you are as a young adult. Right. And so it's that journey that a lot of folks go on and I went on it as well. And then that just kind of spiraled and blossomed into so many other things. I started uh, learning Persian on my own. My parents had put me in a Persian class in eighth grade. I hated it. I didn't like the teacher. Uh, I learned all the alphabet. I learned the alphabet, but I just really felt no motivation to continue with those classes. So um, I, I, I picked it up myself and started looking on the internet for resources. Again, late high school, early college. I was like, I need to be able to, you know, if I want to answer these questions and, and you know, speak as an ambassador, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and, and, and educate and inform people about my parents' heritage and my heritage, I need to do it accurately. And I'd like to be able to read the, you know, the native source material of Iran. So mm-hmm. yeah. I know that you also lived in Iran for some time. Did this happen after you started learning Persian? And um, tell us about that. How did that come about? Right, right. So I think a key sort of turning point for me, uh, now that I look back on it, was really the 2009 Green Movement protests in Iran. 
uh, that was kind of my moment of political social activation with regards to Iran in a way that I hadn't seen it up until that point. Up until that point, it was just like watching YouTube videos and seeing interviews with Iranian officials, seeing interviews with the Shah, just familiarizing myself with the history, reading books, Stephen Kinzer's All the Shah's Men, because it kind of played a big part. And then um, 2009 happened. And I think that kind of set off this sort of chain reaction of thoughts in my head, because visually... I had never seen in any sort of prominent, you know, visual way, for myself at least, so many people, young Iranians that looked like me and acted like me and just seemed, you know, really relatable and cool in the street in such massive, in like droves, right? So I would see this footage and Christian Amanpour was there. They kicked out a lot of Western journalists after, you know, that situation, as you know. Uh, and I was seeing her coverage. I was seeing everyone else's coverage. And I was like, wow, if I had been born and raised in Iran, I would have been one of them. I would have been that person in the street, you know, with a green wristband or something like that. And who are these young people that I don't know? I don't have any Iranian friends from Iran. All the people I know in Iran are just my cousins and my family based on summer vacations we'd go on. So I just developed this like whole other kind of urge and drive to further kind of look into myself and explore my own heritage even more. And that meant traveling to Iran, not just to be with family, but to make friends and to work and to kind of immerse myself into that society. I really wanted to learn about myself and this other part of me that had sort of been suppressed through all these years. So that set up a chain reaction of me uh, in college. I picked, you know, political science as my major with a focus on Middle Eastern studies. I ended up double majoring in Middle Eastern studies and political science. I spent every summer of Iran, uh, of college, every summer, uh, the two or three months of summer in Iran, learning Persian at, say, the, the um, University of Tehran's Dehoda Institute. I, I enrolled myself um, I spent my summers there. I lived with family, but I made tons of friends, both, you know, Iranians and expats. And that was my way of getting in touch. And, and I developed this, you know, I, I wanted to be a journalist kind of uh, in, as a late teenager. And uh, I was like, this is kind of my calling. I want to go to Iran and I want to tell the story of the Iran or help amplify Iranian voices that kind of represent the Iran that you and me know, right? Because I felt like in the media, you know, when my science teacher was asking me questions and my friend's parents were asking me questions, I felt like they were basing their assumptions on an understanding of Iran that was very foreign to me and is perhaps also definitely, I think, yeah, foreign to you. It's foreign to us, like the way other folks might see the country and its people and so forth. So I was like, you know, journalism is my calling and I want to dedicate my life to telling the story of the Iran that I know. Uh, which is not, I think, being reflected as often in the Western media. And so that's that's kind of how that worked. And then after college, I moved to Iran to be a freelance journalist and a translator. Wow. Yeah, I agree with you. And on the Green Movement uh, point that you made, I've actually talked to a lot of other Iranian Americans or Iranians in the diaspora who were encouraged or motivated by seeing the images of Green Movement. Because I think despite the fact that Iran is such a young country, the majority of the population, 70% is under 40 years old, and many of them, like you're saying, are like me and you, we don't see much of that represented in the media. You always see the black chador woman, the black veil, image of the more, you know, religious or um, traditional portion of the society represented in the media. And you hear a lot about the nuclear program and the fights with the U.S. And then you also, there's these images of partying of the youth, you mm -hmm. know, the the westernized parties and all that. You don't see that political movement type that the Green Movement represented was basically a portrayal of 
much in the media. And um, just just basically to say to reiterate what you were saying, I've heard that from other uh, Iranians in the diaspora too. So oh, you moved to Iran and um, and you lived in Iran for a few years. And then now let's move to today to some of your work today. You are a journalist with Al Jazeera. You make videos, as you say in your bio, you make funny food-adjacent videos for AJ+. Tell us about that. How? What do you do um, with <laughs> yeah. these videos? What do you make for those who haven't seen any of them? And I encourage everyone to go and check out some of these videos. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of my career has been a whirlwind of an experience. Lots of twists and turns. So, again, I, I was a print journalist, uh, freelance in Iran, wrote mostly anonymously, um, until later, I came back to the U.S. and got my bylines back on the articles through a lot of uh, conversations with my editors. Um, but, I remember that. I remember right? that. Right. You were kind of part of, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I've been following yeah. you, and I think we've been following <laughs> each other for a long time. So, um, yeah, I got some. I think that was a rare case that some editors had to deal with uh -huh. of, of <laughs> yeah, someone yeah. reclaiming their their right to their byline. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think uh, on one of the one of the pieces I came up with the pseudonym. It was like uh, I was actually writing for Arash Karami, who's who's also a producer on this show that I'm on. And I think I came up with a name. I did one piece for El Monitor, and it was like uh, I did some really weird sounding, like very Persian kind of made up name. It was like. Seper Seperipur or something like that. <laughs> and he's like, you need to make a name that sounds believable. <laughs> so I did something like, you know, Seper Hosseini or something like that. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah. So uh, so let's talk about today. Yes, Al Jazeera right. and so your videos. Did the, I did the journalism thing in Iran and then I moved back. And I think, I think just briefly I need to explain how this happened is that about a year into my experience, you know, one of the folks that I, I really looked up to and that I kind of wanted to emulate in my work was Jason Rezaia, the Washington Post correspondent. Um, and I think we all know what happened to him. He was, you know, unjustly and kind of illegally detained by the Iranian government uh, under these spurious, like, like nonsensical charges. Um, and, uh, basically when I saw what happened, like a year into my time in Iran, after I'd moved there after college, I was like, wow, like I, I have this goal. I have this dream and Jason is doing incredible work. Um, and I don't know, it just kind of, it shook me. And around the same time, you know, I, I just kind of had this come to what's the word come to Jesus moment. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, so I started kind of working for an Iranian animation company around then, uh, you know, that was my day job. And I'd sort of moonlight as a journalist whenever I could, again, anonymously. And uh, and then another year passed. It was like a little over two years that I was in Iran. And I decided to move back to California. And I was like, OK, you know, this journalism thing, you know, Jason is still in jail. It's just like this heartbreaking thing that's happening every day. And and I'm just going to move back to the States and we'll see what's up. The nuclear deal has been signed, you know, and maybe things will change. Let's see. So tell us. Tell us about a little bit about the show. What is it for those, assume someone who hasn't watched any of the videos, what do they see? Tell us how, what you do with the food and what these videos and the show is about. Gotcha. So our show at AJ Plus is like a food and social justice show, right? As I mentioned. Uh, and it it looks at the intersection of, of food and kind of, issues or history or again a social topic or even the environment right so anytime we'll see like food intersect with one of those topics and if whether it's like a trending topic or a news topic or a historical topic we'll kind of jump on that story again it's not like a show that that 
you know, looks specifically at, uh, you know, de- the deliciousness of food, but it looks at the issues behind the food. And, uh, and we, you know, we like to make it fun and funny whenever we can. So it's always entertaining to watch, I hope, uh, is what I've been told, but, you know, depending on your person, personal preferences. But uh, yeah, and so some of the topics we've looked at, like what does a food and social justice show look like? Let's look at kind of one of our episodes that I think uh, is one of my favorites is the history or like the, the topic of MSG, right? And uh, I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's basically the story of uh, you know, MSG is an ingredient that's used in a lot of foods in the United States, but there's kind of a backlash against it. A lot of people are afraid of MSG. They think they're allergic to it. They think they're having some sort of reaction when they eat it. They stay away from it. Well, it turns out a lot of the evidence that leads people to believe that is rooted in faulty science, one, and two, xenophobia and racism. So that's kind of a topic we uncover in the show. And, you know, we we speak to an author who's written about MSG. We speak to Asian American chefs who have kind of brushed up against the sort of racism and sort of the fraught uh, kind of environment around that one ingredient. It's probably the most controversial ingredient, I think, uh, maybe in the modern history of cooking. Uh, for a variety of unfortunate reasons. But yeah, basically break it down and show that, you know, there really isn't any, you know, double blind, uh, airtight scientific evidence that proves MSG produces the symptoms that people claim they have. Uh, And so we look at it and like there's this history. I I definitely advise viewers or listeners to take a look at the episode. Uh, It's up on YouTube. It's been there for a while. And we break down the reasons why this ingredient is so misunderstood and the social factors and the scientific factors that played into this faulty understanding. Um, So that's one example. And then we've done an episode on food waste in the United States. So it's food and an issue. We've done an episode on uh, like what other things? Oh, uh, the Native American cuisine, for example. You know, why is it this is the original cuisine of this land, the United States that we're on today? Um, and yet we don't see, you know, Native American restaurants or at least restaurants that are branded as Native American as often as we really should. Again, this is the original American food, quote unquote, as kind of Padma Lakshmi describes in her kind of recent Hulu show. And uh, with her, you know, she interviews kind of Native communities as well. And it's like, but where is it? Where, why is it not more prominently displayed? And so then through that, we look at the history of genocide. We look at the history of the forced removal of indigenous people from this land and how that disrupted their kind of food, the, their food ways and their culinary history. So mm-hmm. you also did some uh, videos. You're doing some projects on the travel ban, the cuisine of, um, I think, kind con- immigrants maybe from countries that are under the travel ban. Can you tell us more about that? Also Iran, if you've done any on Iran. Mm, Totally, totally. Yeah. So um, recently uh, in collaboration with the No Muslim Ban Ever campaign, we have kind of launched a little co-initiative to sort of highlight and humanize the voices of people who have been affected or whose communities have been affected by uh, President Trump's travel ban. So we featured four different communities. The fourth episode will be out very soon, but uh, we have an episode on Nigerian, uh, the Nigerian community or Nigerian food, Syrian food, um, Yemeni food, and then the last one that's coming out is Iranian food. And so we've spoken to people, again, who have been directly impacted or whose communities have been impacted by the travel ban. And then while we're doing that, while we're talking about those experiences, we're also cooking a dish that they've chosen, right? And obviously I can't taste the dish because it's COVID and I also can't go to where they are. So I'm just like staring at it and like salivating over Skype or Zoom or what have you. (laughs) um, uh, Yeah. And so this is really an attempt through, you know, very much in line with the ethos of our show to teach and educate 
through and 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 you know uh, humanize people through the lens of food and uh that's honestly my ultimate goal and i think that's something that reaches into back into what i what prompted me to kind of get involved with journalism in iran it's to humanize people and tell those and you know not tell those stories i think it's better to say like really to amplify their voices and hand them the microphone uh, communities that don't often get to hold the microphone, or maybe the volume is low when they do hold the microphone, metaphorically speaking. So that is something that really animates a lot of what I do. It's it's and and it's integral to this new series that we're doing. Again, humanizing, giving the microphone to those people who have been marginalized uh, by you know the current administration in this country. Hmm. Um- also, speaking of the travel ban, I want to point out um, some recent experiences that build up also on previous experiences you had, for example, on Twitter um, with some videos being automatically flagged, I guess, by Twitter. And then there have been experiences with Etsy in the past um, with Persian dolls, for example, being excluded from Etsy due to sanctions with Venmo. Um, I saw you basically talking about um censoring our identities as Iranians mm. or Iranian Americans or even Persians. Tell us a little bit about that and also specifically about your experience with Twitter. Actually, let's start with Twitter. So the Twitter thing, I mean, like, just to kind of explain, yeah, it's it's there's a couple things. It seems almost like, you know, the word Iranian or references to, you know, our shared heritage, Nagar, has been like criminalized, like mentioning, you know, merely mentioning our ethnic background, our national, you know, background, our heritage background. Uh, leads us to, you know, leads to all these like horrific circumstances. You know, we've seen even in years past, uh, Apple stores wouldn't sell iPads or some of their products to folks who were speaking Persian or who mentioned the word Iran in kind of an, uh, a, a, a side conversation while they were waiting for their iPad at the store. And then this, the, you know, the store denied them that. And then we have on Venmo, we have uh, an instance where any mention of Iranian, Persian, and then also other groups as well, Syrian, uh, uh, Cuban and so on and so forth. Uh, any mention of those words in your Venmo transaction could lead the transaction to be blocked. It definitely, for one, leads the transaction to be submitted, quote unquote, for review to Venmo's team, right? I've actually had that experience. I was out to lunch to a Persian lunch with a colleague who's not Iranian. And he was paying me back on Venmo for the Persian lunch and the payment got flagged automatically by Venmo right. because of US sanctions. It's exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that Venmo. And then there's a the story of Etsy uh, where I think a woman was selling Persian dolls on the platform. And for whatever reason, there was some automated algorithmic function that flagged the Persian dolls as something that was not permitted on Etsy. And they took down, I think, her page or she was in some way restricted from selling the dolls for a while. Then her daughter kind of uh, raised the issue on Twitter and folks responded and, and it was dealt with and, and their the dolls were restored to the platform. But again, Persian. And then to bring it back to your original question about Twitter, and, and this is something that I believe has been resolved. And I was very fortunate in that. Um, so what happened is that uh, or I think it's been resolved. Let's see. We have to keep an eye on it. But basically, I, I had been tweeting out videos, uh, you know, that pertain to Iranian concepts or even with this recent, you know, travel ban series, we use the word Muslim or Muslim ban. And I had noticed that these videos were being censored by Twitter. It was basically being marked as sensitive content. Um, and then I saw another kind of Twitter friend of mine, uh, Nazdar Avian, a wonderful chef and cookbook author. Uh, she had also tweeted that she maybe put out a small segment from her from Padma Lakshmi's new Hulu show, Taste the Nation, where she was featured. 
And uh, the small snippet of the video that she added, you know, she had also written Iranian, I think, in the text, perhaps, or something like that. Uh, but the small snippet of the video that she added to Twitter, it was also marked as sensitive content. So I was like, wow, OK, this is becoming a trend. Um, what is going on? And when when the content is viewed as sensitive content or is marked as sensitive content, I think it's it's it, the views basically don't rise at kind of the same level. So you kind of sense something is is awry uh, because folks. Yeah, because people, certain people don't have for those who are not familiar with Twitter and our audience, uh, you basically have to go and change some settings in your Twitter. So not everyone is automatically going to see that sensitive content. It will basically be marked and uh, as pretty much invisible to a lot of users on Twitter. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And so, so yeah, I, I you know, I, I tweeted at Twitter support and at Omid Kordasani, who's, you know, a Twitter board member. He's another member of our community, Iranian American. And I was like, yo, what's going on? I mean, Omid, this affects you as much as it affects me. Uh, you know, we, we are both of the same heritage. Uh, and it seems, it seems that, you know, your platform is, is potentially flagging video content that has some reference to Iranian or Muslim or something like that. I wasn't sure. I, I don't have you know, hard evidence, but I have a number of anecdotal cases that are kind of repeating themselves. And so he actually, uh, miraculously, even though I'd flagged this before with a video that we had done on hormasabzi, hormasabzi pizza, <laughs> an Iranian stew or an Iranian braise or choresht, I should say, <laughs> that we put on a pizza. And that's kind of a story in itself. Um, I noticed that then. And then we did this Muslim band series. I noticed it again. So he, I, I tagged him and this time he responded. And he said, okay, this is, I'm going to look into this. I don't believe it's malicious. And then I believe the head of Twitter support, Donald something, he then followed up an hour or so later, I believe, and uh, actually lifted the the censorship. He said, I don't know, I think it was, a, you know, he basically described it as like, it wasn't malicious. It was a technical fluke. Not sure what's going on. So I think it's definitely something for us to keep our eyes on as a community um, and any other communities that also are impacted by this, but to make sure that that you know our content isn't automatically being flagged by an algorithm that is basically following over compliance with U.S. sanctions to the point where literally mentioning a sanctioned country, which actually contains human beings that are living and have food and culture is somehow viewed as uh, not permitted or illegal or whatever. And that's that's mm -hmm. something that keeps well, happening. Not just a sanctioned country, but also Persian, the word Persian, yeah. which is the language or the ethnicity and not just the word Iran. And I also want to add that not all organizations are like Twitter. That's, you know, progressive mm -hmm, and responsive. Mm -hmm, and not yeah. all organizations have an Iranian American yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a board member, <laughs> right. which is Omid Kordestani. So yeah, and I'm, I'm very yeah. grateful that they did look into it. So I think I think Twitter's I'm, I'm inclined to believe as of now, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe these three cases that I've highlighted uh, were just kind of, who knows? It could have been a variety of other reasons. I, I'd like to believe that, but just something to keep an eye on um, because, you know, we've seen it at Venmo. We've seen it on Etsy. We've seen Bank of America freezing uh, the accounts of people of Iranian heritage, uh, you know, because of some false notion of, of that money being somehow connected to I don't know, nuclear, pro I don't know what is going on in their heads, but it's over compliance with sanctions, unfortunately, and that hurts uh, millions of innocent people. And it's it's I don't, it's 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 frustrating. Yeah. So for those who may not be very familiar with this, due to U.S. sanctions, U.S. companies, American companies cannot provide certain products or services to Iranians. That's where all this starts. But then the overcompliance ends up being me trying to pay my British colleague for Persian food on Venmo and the payment being flagged. So that's basically the the story in brief. And so finally, I want to also talk about 
Uh, we talked about social justice. I want to talk about the protests happening right now in the U.S. and also anti-blackness in certain communities, including the Iranian-American community. Or I think you tweeted about how Middle Eastern Americans in general can take action to confront anti-blackness within our own communities. Tell us how you think Iranian-Americans at least can, how this anti-blackness um happens in our community and how you think uh, at least a younger generation can confront it. Yeah, so I think this is something I'm sure you've seen as well, Nagar. Um, it's something I'm seeing circulate quite a bit on social media. But there is, unfortunately, this very ugly kind of trend or culture of uh, anti-blackness that exists within segments of the Iranian population and Iranian Americans, you know, hyphenated Iranians, what have you, but it's in our community. Uh, as as it is in other kind of, you know, I've, I've, I have other Middle Eastern friends, I have Arab American friends, I have Arab friends, I have, you know, uh, Asian friends, and so on and so forth. It exists in other communities of color, you know, specifically anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I... Segments of the community, as yes, you're yes, saying, segments. just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. It's not everyone in these communities, of course, but yeah, there's, there are certain segments in the community. It's very concerning. Absolutely. Yeah. So segments of all, you know, all these other communities of color, there is there is a part of them that that does have, you know, this virulent anti-blackness kind of. And sometimes it's very, it's subconscious. It's something that's, it's kind of, it, it, it's, it, it's not as overt, but, but to those of us who are keyed into it, we know when it is and when it happens. And so, you know, I've, I've tried to at least, uh, you know, with kind of what's been going on in the country right now, I you know, take this opportunity to educate those relatives of mine who I know have said things and have acted in certain ways that reflect uh, basically this sentiment of anti-blackness. And I've tried to change them because ultimately, look, I mean, these are people that they're relatives of mine. They're, I, we have, we're going to be living together. We're going to be alive on this planet together. If there's something I can do to change their way of thinking, to seize this kind of moment where they're keyed into the news and they're, and they're thinking about this thing, this to me is an opening where I can, I can really make a legitimate effort to have a conversation with them. And, you know, so for one relative, I, I will you know, leave them un, unnamed. I purchased, you know, two books for them by black American authors, um, uh, one by Ijoma Oluo. Uh, so you want to talk about race. I think that's what it is. And then there is Tanaisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me. So I bought them two books and I was like, look, uh, we've been having these furious text message conversations where you say things that I find deeply offensive and completely wrongheaded and reflect a, a, not a very good understanding of what's going on. Uh, I'm going to buy you two books, right? And so, you know, that's that's where we started. And actually, I was very heartened because after they read... Uh, maybe 20%, they told me, of Ijeoma Oluo's book, uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, basically, they they were like, oh, you know what? This is interesting. I noticed this, you know, because this person is a small business owner. And like, I noticed this. I hired, uh, you know, a black employee. And now I'm remembering the ways that customers treated her. And I was just like, oh, my God. And because, again, if I tell you the background of the conversations I've had with this relative, it was literally moments of me, like, arguing with them, them being like, you don't understand me, Yara. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm Iranian. We suffered, too. We are also, you know, we suffered a lot. Do you remember? I don't know. You don't know what I've been through in 1980, you know, 81. When I came to this country, people threw rocks at me, spat on me, said things to my friends, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, yes, I am in no way trying to discount that. You know, obviously, as a second generation, you know, uh, American myself. I have also experienced, you know, uh, 
discrimination. And we've talked about some of the issues here. And you have, of course, as a first generation Iranian American coming to the United uh, uh, United States after the hostage crisis, after the you know revolution of 1979, when tensions were high, higher than they are today, racism was rampant against Iranians. Yes, yes. And it still is. Uh, that is real. And there's, and there's no attempt being made to discount that experience. But we also need to understand that if you are starting at square minus two, you know, at square one, whatever you want to call it, there are people who are starting at square negative 10, right? And we need to understand the systemic racism that is a product of, of centuries of oppression and, and the system of slavery that this country was built upon. Uh, that has led to fundamental injustices and inequalities that still, still exist very much today. So it, it, it's it's not it's kind of a way of trying to explain like yes, your experience is valid. No one is denying that, but it's a matter of let's open our hearts and our minds to someone who has it worse than you. And, and this is something that, you know, I'm trying to explain. I'm trying to find analogs, honestly, and, and maybe we can talk about this, Nagar, if you have ideas, but I'm trying to find similar situations that this relative has gone through in Iran, let's say, with regards to the revolution, to kind of make those connections and be like, you were that person in Iran. You were setting trash cans on fire, protesting the Shah in Iran. You were you were setting dumpsters. You were, God knows, rolling tires in the middle of the street. You know, we saw this, you know, these are protest tactics that exist all over the world. But for some reason, when it happens in this country, you know, this individual's adopted new country, you know, America is their homeland now. They don't see the connection. They say, oh, this is just looting. These are hooligans who are looting and these are hooligans who are setting trash cans on fire. Okay, but 40 years ago, you were in support of that. You were doing that yourself. Why is it? Well, not 40 years ago, but even the ongoing oh, protests in Iran course. in the past years, a lot of these people are supporters of As And as you were saying, I think part of it is also as a minority group or as an immigrant, some the defense mechanism for some people is try to blend in with the powerful group and then reenact or repeat what they're saying, which would include some of this, you know, racist or xenophobic rhetoric against other communities of um, of minorities or communities of color or immigrants uh, without even realizing that you're doing it. And I think part of it could also be ignorance. But I want to end this on a positive note. So I also want to talk about the other parts of the immigrant or minority communities who are sympathetic, who are supportive of these social justice movements. And I saw you made a video about a Bangladeshi mm -hmm. restaurant, if mm -hmm. I'm not wrong, in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Tell us that story and what you heard from that family. Absolutely, absolutely. So we interviewed a Bangladeshi uh, family that had kind of an Indian Bangladeshi restaurant in Minneapolis. The restaurant was burned down in the protests following the killing of George Floyd by police. And basically, I think this family's reaction to the destruction of basically their sole source of livelihood was, I think, a moment kind of for a lot of folks to reflect uh, the poise and composure and kind of reaction that they had to something so horrific, right, that that fundamentally affects their family was was really inspiring and a testament to the human kind of ability to to kind of stand up above everything. In other words, you know, when when they go low, you go high, have the kind of the macro view of what's going on. And they were like, it's OK. And then and the daughter of the, the restaurant owner, you know, released a Facebook post describing what her dad, the owner of the restaurant, said. 
uh, and it was something to the effect of let my building burn, justice needs to be served. And that was just, it just gives me goosebumps even selling, you know, t- telling you right now or recounting that story to you right now, because it's just, that that is such an inspiring outlook to be like, look, you know, this is property. This is something that can be rebuilt. Um, and yes, it is painful to lose it. But what's more painful is you will not be able to bring George Floyd back to life. You will not be able to bring Breonna Taylor back to life. These are human lives we're talking about, right? And and that sort of recognition of like, let's let's focus instead, instead of talking about looting, instead of talking about destruction, let's focus instead on making sure justice is served and we try to rectify the ills of our society. So that's to say to your question as well, of course, I mean, within the Iranian community is inspiring stories of people standing up uh, for the movement for, you know, uh, for black rights and Black Lives Matter and so forth. And there's folks in the Middle Eastern community, Middle Eastern American community. Of course, it's inspiring. So this is not to say that, you know, everyone in our community is this or that. But, you know, it's it's also an attempt to reflect and look back on us and try to improve and educate those members of our communities, however, you know, small they may be, that they should also join the train for justice. And we are all demanding the same thing, ideally, uh, when all is said and done and people have hopefully opened their eyes to the situation. But, yeah, this 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 man's, you know, he's a he is a person of color. He's a member of the Bangladeshi American community. And his story is just so inspiring. And I really hope that some folks from our community, Nagar, could watch that video and and think about the greater issues at hand here, a human life versus a brick. And again, this is not to in any way endorse, you know, if this is the reading is that it's endorsing destruction. No, but it's a matter of spending your energy. I have a limited amount of energy to spend in a Facebook post or Twitter post or to make a complaint or to yell something at the top of my lungs. I would rather use that energy to demand justice than to decry you know, uh, the loss of a piece of property. Mm-hmm. And also, let's not forget that these movements and some of the achievements of these movements for social justice have benefited all communities of color, or immigrants or minorities in this country. Some may not even know it. Well, on that note, Yara, thank you for joining there on podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll catch you on Twitter. <laughs> That was Yara Enjui, an award-winning journalist with Al Jazeera who hosts and produces the show Eat This with Yara. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. You can find us on your podcast apps and don't forget to subscribe to us and also rate and review the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where we post about future shows, our guests, and also post some questions to our audience. You can also message us directly on Twitter if you have any comments or feedback for the show. Until next time, goodbye.